So, as we finish up the book of Romans tonight, uh, if you'd open up to chapter 16, we are in Romans 16, 17 through 27. Romans 16, 17 through 27. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cortus, greets you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed... And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let me pray for us as we begin our time. I'll turn to his word. Lord God, we thank you for the wonderful time we've had studying uh, this book. Lord, I pray that as we close it out, uh, God, that you would speak to us your truth that we would see uh, Christ exalted, and Lord, that uh, you'd be glorified. Lord, pierce our hearts. Uh, May we see the grace that we need, and may we see uh, you who is worthy to be glorified and honored and praised. Bless us in this time we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. How many of you guys, uh, when you were younger, maybe still now, but probably more when you were younger, uh, let's say you, your family went over to a friend's house, you know, so your family's there, their family's there, you guys are hanging out, and it's getting late, and your parents say, all right, Jimmy, it's, it's time to go home, go ahead and get your shoes on, you know, and get ready to go, and you're okay, you know, you don't want to, you want to keep playing, but you get your shoes on, everyone's there at the front door, getting ready to go, and then the parents keep talking, yeah, you see, you're doing it, the parents keep talking, and you already kind of said your goodbye, and then, but then for whatever reason, the parents are still talking, so you and your friend look at each other, and you just kind of <laughs> sneak your way on back, and you keep hanging out, you know, at, you know, uh, 10 minutes go by, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and then your parents are like, Jimmy, Jimmy, we got to go, like, come on, what are you doing, we got to go home, okay, so you know, you guys are there, walking out the door again, and then the parents keep talking, right, and then you kind of look around, and you kind of inch your way out, right? And I mean, this this could be uh, hours, days, maybe, that, that this has happened. Uh, now now I, I am that parent, and now my kids, and, and Josiah's son, who's a bad influence on my son, it, it just, it just sneaks out, right? And they just keep talking. This is what happens. Uh, and, and at some point, you're just like, even though you want to hang out with your friends, you're like, come on, mom, dad, like, hurry up and say your goodbye, like, or at least mean your goodbye. You, you've already said it like five times by now. Uh, even though you want to keep playing, uh, e- even though uh, they've said their goodbyes. That's, that's kind of how I feel like what's going on here at the end of Romans. 
Uh, it, it has seemed as if Paul finished up his letter in verse 16, where we were last week. He has all these greetings, remember these 24 people, and at the very end he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And that would have been a fine ending. That would have been a very appropriate ending. But it's almost as if Paul couldn't say goodbye just yet. And I'm glad, because that gives me another week in this book that I love to be preaching it. It's almost as if, and, and I am, I, I admit, I'm reading between the lines here, okay? Uh, but it's as if, like, he'd sent all these greetings to these 24 people, and, and then he was reminded, he was moved just to give one last final word. I, I, I picture he's, he's greet this person, greet this person, greet this person, and as he's, oh, well, he's not picturing their face because he hasn't met them yet. But as, as he's picturing them, as, as, he's, as he's understanding who they are and, and his, his love for them, he's reminded out of his love i got to warn these people. Wait a second. got to warn them. i got to encourage them. i got, I, I got to praise God, give praise to God. And so as Paul closes out this magnificent letter, that's what we're going to look at tonight, is that in his final word, he gives a final word of warning, and he gives a final word of encouragement, and he gives a final word of praise. And then he actually wraps it up for real. All right? So our first section here, a word of warning, verses 17 through 19. First, we see to watch out for false teaching. He says in verse 17, 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And again, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but I think Paul, again, was moved by his love. Remember last week we looked at his love for these people, and he's moved by his love for these people, and he says, I appeal to you, watch out, watch out, brothers, for these false teachers. Because you see, love seeks to protect. If you love someone, you want what is best for them. If you love someone, you do not want harm to come to them. And one of the greatest harms that can be done to someone is planting seeds of deception that distorts the truths of God. And one of the greatest good that you can give to someone are the very truths of God. And so out of love for this church, Paul says, watch out for these false teachers. And the word for watch out here is actually one word. It's the word scopio. That's where we get the word scope. Like the word tel- you know, that we get in telescope or microscope. It, the, the word implies that not, not just a looking at, not, not just uh, noting, like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of noticed that. But it's a careful examination. Scopio is saying, watch, I have a careful examination to, to carefully examine whether what is presented is biblically true or not. Do you carefully examine what you're being taught? When your friends or, or, or your, your influencers give you a perspective on how to view something in this world or view something in your life, do you carefully examine whether it's biblically true or not? Whether it's a biblical way to view it? We must be people of discernment. We must be people who carefully examine what we are being fed. And how can we discern truth from falsehood? By understanding and by knowing the truth, right? 
The, the commonly used illustration, you've probably heard it before, is that of counterfeit money. Have you heard this before? Where people, when they're trying to understand what counterfeit, like catch a counterfeit bill, what, what, what do they do before? They, they study, they handle real money over and over, hours and hours and hours. I don't know how many hours they're, they're handling it, grabbing it, passing it. They, they know what real money feels like. So the second they put their hands on a counterfeit dollar, they know this is not real. Why? Because they know so well what the real dollar feels like. And so when they feel the counterfeit, they know that it's false. In the same way, we need to know the truth and handle truth so much, handle God's word so much that we know it. That when something false happens, when we hear something that is contrary to the Bible, we are able to discern it because we say, wait a second, this is not right. Now, who is it that Paul says to watch out for? He says those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Now, he's not talking about minor disagreements. Uh, the, those that, you know, that, 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 that just uh, are, are those minor disagreements that, that are different than how you view it. In fact, if you remember in chapter 14, he talked about having unity despite those disagreements, such as food and drink. Right? He says have unity amongst those disagreements. So we are to watch out. We're not to carefully examine everyone and everything that isn't exactly like you. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about here are those who come in to, to divide, to divide the body. He's saying be watchful for those who seek to cause division in the body of Christ. Those who plant seeds of division. You know, I've even seen that here at TYG. I've seen it here. I've seen people talk bad about each other here who plant these seeds of division. People here who say, oh, my goodness, did you see that she was saying this? Did, did you hear that he was doing that? I can't believe that she would do this. I can't believe that he would say that. And they plant these seeds of division amongst even this body. And it's not okay, and it's not honoring to Christ. What's even worse is what Paul continues to say about these people if you look at verse 17, he says, who cause divisions, where it says, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. And what he's talking about here are those who preach a gospel that is contrary to the true gospel. And that is the biggest crime. There is no greater harm, there's no greater danger than that of a false gospel. And we should take this very, very seriously. In fact, look how seriously Paul takes it in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 6, I'm sorry, 1, 6 through 8. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 8. But even if we, as apostle, uh, Paul and the other apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to him, let him be accursed, he says. If anyone says anything contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't listen and let him be accursed. And sadly, there are many false gospels that are being taught today. False gospels that put man in the center. False gospels that take away the work of Jesus Christ and place the glory on man. Do not fall to any of these false gospels. I'd argue it's the most dangerous thing that you can do because it has eternal consequences. But what does Paul say to do with these false teachers? He says right there at the end of verse 17, avoid them. 
He says, avoid them. Don't listen to them. Don't engage with them. Don't sit under their teaching. He doesn't say to fight back and physically harm them, like unfortunately some have done in the past, that in the name of the Lord they cause harm to others. No, that's not what Paul's saying. And interestingly enough, he also doesn't say correct them. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say to engage with them and correct the false teachers. No, instead he says, avoid them. Avoid them. Are you discerning on what you ought to be engaging in and what you ought to be avoiding? I mean, I see a lot of bad doctrine. I mean a lot of bad doctrine on the Internet. And people these days easily, they, they can share it and they can like it. These clips, these videos of bad doctrine, these, these short little 15 seconds of this guy, you know, who's super cool and hip and he's telling you something and it's bad doctrine. But we're like, okay, yeah, we like it. We share it. Are you discerning or are you feeding yourself bad doctrine? And are you sharing and are you supporting bad doctrine? Doctrine that is contrary to the word of God. Doctrine that is a false gospel. Avoid such things. Be discerning. And what does Paul say about these false teachers? He says that they have a bad motive and that they're just smooth talkers, he says in verse 18. And no matter how genuine they may seem, no matter how likable they may be, they are not about Christ's glorification. They're about self-glorification. They don't serve the Lord They serve their own appetites, Paul says. They serve themselves, not Christ. Paul says they're just smooth talkers. They're just flatterers. This is why they maybe receive so many likes, so many followers, because they flatter, because they talk smooth. They make you feel good about yourself. Paul says that these people deceive the hearts of the naive. Have you been deceived? Are you being deceived? Are you naive? Do you know the truths of God's word? Know his word and discern his truth. And hear Paul's word of warning. Watch out for false teaching. This continues in verse 19. And our next point is to be on guard and be wise and be innocent. Verse 19. Be on guard, be wise and be innocent. One of the reasons why Paul might be giving them this warning to be on guard, maybe the reasons why I I said at the beginning that maybe he thought of them and then decided to jump into this warning is because of what he says in verse 19. Look at the beginning. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. He's saying, look, your obedience is known to all. Like they've heard of your obedience, so watch out. They're coming for you. They know. They know that you guys have been obedient. And indeed, I believe that the enemy hates and he often seeks out those who are in obedience, who are doing the work of the Lord, who are serving God. The enemy hates that. And this church has gained a good reputation for their obedience. What a great target for the enemy and the false teachers to say, no, 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 I don't like what's going on over there in Rome. We got to disrupt this. So Christian, be on guard. Are you growing in the Lord? If so, then be on guard. Are you serving his kingdom? If so, be on guard. Because you're upsetting the enemy. 
And you can bet that he's probably going to be sending temptations your way. This church was doing good. And they were living in obedience. But Paul knows that even faithful and even strong believers are still susceptible to sin. And they still fall into temptation. So Christian, do not become prideful and think that because maybe you're doing well in your walk, that you can just put your guard down. Like, I'm doing pretty good right now. I can relax. I can put my guard down. No, never put it down. But always be on guard. And so Paul urges them, be wise to what is good and be innocent as to what is evil. What does that mean? Be wise to what is good and innocent as to evil. Wise to what is good. What's he saying to be wise to what is good? Understand and know what is good. Understand and know that and put that into practice. That's what it means to be wise and to be wise to what is good. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what does he say? Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Do you think about these things? Do you think about these things? Do you fill your mind with these things in which I read? Have you learned them? Have you received them? And do you practice them? We fill our minds with so many things, do we not? Surely we do. All day we're filling our minds with something. Do you fill it with wisdom? Do you fill your minds with what is true? Do you fill your minds with what is honorable? Likely you fill your minds with a lot of things that are dishonorable. Do you fill your minds with whatever is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent, what is worthy of praise? Do you think about these things, he says? You fill your minds with that. We fill our minds with things. And often what? We act accordingly. Accordingly to how we fill our minds. We react to what we fill our minds with. So he says, be wise to what is good. Fill your mind and understand and know what is good. And then he says what? Put that into practice. Put these things in which you are to fill your mind on, in which you are to think about these things. He says, put that into practice. It is a waste to fill your mind with what is good, but then to not live by it. That's not wise. Just filling your mind with these things, but then not living by it? That's foolishness. Wisdom is living in accordance to what you know is good. So that's what he says. To be wise to what is good. And then he says to be innocent as to what is evil. Be innocent as to what is evil. Now notice he doesn't say be ignorant to what is evil. He doesn't say completely abandon the world. Don't engage in the world for fear of being knowledgeable of evil. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say completely isolate from the world. No, we are to live and we are to engage in the world. But while we are not to completely shut out the world, while we are not to live as hermits, we are to stay innocent as to what is evil, he says. Do not engage in worldliness and sinfulness. You know what is evil. I would bet most people in this room, you know what is evil. He says be innocent as to what is evil. Sadly, some Christians, they completely take this the wrong way and they they 
to, to justify their own sin. Engaging in worldly, sinful, and dark vices of the world, claiming that they need to be familiar with the world so they know how to best minister to the world. No. That is a sad excuse to, to dabble in worldliness. You don't need to be close to evil to know that it's evil. You know that it's evil. I like what John MacArthur said about it. He said, it's not necessary to sift through garbage to recognize it for what it is. And the more we are around it, the more we pick up its stench. The more willingly we associate with evil, the more it will drag us down to its level. Be wise to what is good. Be innocent to what is evil. Don't engage in evil for the sake of knowing what is good and evil. Scripture is full of these warnings. Just a couple passages for that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's good. But then what does he say? Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Be mindful. Be aware. Be on guard of the influence that the evil of this world has on you. Have you found yourself attracted to certain evils in this world? People say, oh, yeah, it's my guilty pleasure. Don't ever find pleasure in what is guilty. Have no partnership with the evil in this world. Have nothing to do with it. Be on guard. Be wise. And be innocent. As Jesus said, he said something very similar. He said, be wise as serpents and be innocent as doves. Know what is good and pursue that. Know what is evil and stay away from that. So Paul right here, as he closes out the letter, he gives them a last word of warning. Right? He's listing all these names, these 24 people, and he's thinking, wait, wait, I, I appeal to you, brothers. Watch out. He's forget- like, like he remembered, wait, you guys are doing good. They're coming after you. Watch out. And then he says, wait a second, be encouraged, though. Be encouraged. So our next main section is a word of encouragement. Verses 20 through 23. And the very first way in which he transitions from warning to encouragement is verse 20. And our sub point is that God is victorious. God is victorious. After warning them of the dangers of the false teachers, he gives them a word of encouragement. Because fighting in spiritual warfare, what? It's draining, is it not? It can be discouraging. But Paul assures him of the victory that belongs to God. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. When we speak of salvation, sometimes we speak of it in three ways, right? Sometimes we say, I have been saved. Justification, right? I've been saved. Sometimes we say, I'm being saved, right? Our sanctification, like I am being saved. And sometimes we say, I will be saved, right? Glorification, I will be saved. And in some way, I believe this is how we can think of our victory over Satan as well. I have, you know, I have been, I am being, I will be same with, with our victory over Satan. Satan has been defeated. 
on the cross, when Jesus laid down his life to become the once for all, the ultimate sufficient sacrifice for all believers, and he paid for all of their sins, and he rose three days later, Satan was defeated. What else? Satan is being defeated in our daily spiritual battles, right? That there's, there's a daily battle that we encounter. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that we must walk in the Spirit. And we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And when we choose to walk in the spirit and we choose to say no to sin, we are experiencing victory over the current weight of our own sin. And in that moment, God is glorified and Satan is made out to be a fool. He is being defeated. And what? Satan will be defeated. He will be in the end times when he is cast into the lake of fire. One day Christ will return. One day Christ will throw Satan in the lake of fire. And there will be final victory over Satan. And he will be defeated. And this victory over Satan is found in Jesus Christ. And every believer shares in this victory with him. In our union with Christ. In some ways I think verse 20, maybe you heard it. It's, a, it's kind of a call back to Genesis 3.15, right, when he says that, that he, as in Jesus, shall crush your head, talking to Satan. We know the end. We know the victory belongs to Jesus. Satan stands no chance. And Christian, because of your union with Christ, Paul can say that Satan will be crushed under your feet. With Christ. You share in that victory, which is Christ. So be encouraged. That in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of difficulties of living for Christ, in the midst of discouragements of the sin around us, he says, be encouraged because there is victory in Jesus Christ. How else does he encourage them? Verses 21 through 23. The body of Christ is a means of grace to you. The body of Christ is a means of grace to you. Paul once again lists a bunch of names. And we're like, oh my goodness, Paul, more names. Come on. These were a little easy. We got Jason in there. I like that. Timothy, not bad. The rest, I, I did my best. Okay. And it's a different list. Last time we looked at 24 people that he was greeting, that he was sending love to. These people are the people that are with him while he's writing the letter. They are currently with him in some way. All of them have helped out Paul in some way. The names that we read tonight. And once again, like last week, we see a diversity of people and yet at the same time unity through the blood of Christ and unity in a mission of ministering towards the one gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are these people? I didn't go through all 24 last time, but this time I'm just, just, just briefly going to go through each of these guys, okay? Timothy. Who was Timothy? A lot of you guys know. Paul's protege. He, he was very close to Timothy. Uh, Paul and Timothy were close, like a spiritual father and son. We see this in Philippians 2. speaks of this. We have Lucius, Jason, and Sospiter. He calls them his kinsmen. What's he saying? Likely meaning they're fellow Jews like him. Fellow Jews with him, his kinsmen. All three of them were part of his ministry at some point in the past. You can see in the book of Acts, they were all likely there with him to go with him as he brought that offering to the Jewish congregation in Jerusalem. Remember we talked about that last week? They're bringing that offering from those Gentile churches to, the, to that Jewish congregation. These guys are going to be going with him. Tertius and Cortus. Interesting. In the Roman household, uh, house servants were a common thing back then. Sometimes known as slaves, sometimes known as uh, servants, household servants. And in these, there would be tiers of servants from the greatest to the least. And often their names 
would reflect where they stood in the pecking order. You have Primus, who is one. You have Secondus, who is two. You have Tertius, who is three. Cortus, who is four. Quintus, who is five, and so on. And here we see Tertius and Cortus, number three and number four. That's his name. His name is three, welcomes you. Four, welcomes you. Even though they were household servants, many, as not viewed as important in society, they were part of the gospel work. And they were ministering to the Apostle Paul. In fact, Tertius, number three, is the one who physically wrote the letter as Paul's speaking. Paul is the one speaking this, and Tertius, number three, is writing it down. And then Gaius, he's the one who's hosting Paul at the moment. He's writing the letter. He also hosted the church at his house as well. And then Erastus, a public official who helped aid Paul in his ministry as well. Now, all that might seem insignificant, might seem trivial, but I think there's actually a lot we can glean from this. One, like we looked at last week, God uses all kinds of people to accomplish his will. He uses all kinds of people to accomplish his will. I won't belabor the point. Like I said, we looked at it last week. But I do think we need to recognize it here again in this context, that we see such a great diversity from a governmental authority in Erastus and then a slave in Tertius and Cortus, a number four slave. And everyone in between, they all played a part and a role in the work of the gospel. All have ministered to Paul. All are partakers and contributors to the proclamation of the gospel. All were used by God in some way. And the same is true for you, Christian. The same is true for you. I don't know God's specific call for each of you, but I do know that God has called each of you, if you're a Christian, to be a servant of him. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a missionary in a dangerous location. Maybe. That may be God's call for your life, but it may not. And whether it is or whether it isn't, God has called you to serve him. And it's no less significant or insignificant. He has called you. What is your unique calling, Christian? How is God calling you to serve him today? God gave Erastus, a public official, different capabilities, different gifts, different opportunities than he did Tertius, the slave. And yet both played a part in Paul's ministry and the advancement of the gospel. Both did. What about you? What about you today here in the Bay Area or in Tennessee, wherever you might be? How will you play a role? In ministry and the advancement of the gospel. At 10 years old, 12 years old, 16, 16 years old, 18, 24, 55. We got some 55s back there, right? We got 55 plus? No? No? Yeah, say someone keeps looking. No? Okay. No matter how old, no matter where you are, how is he calling you specifically? You have unique opportunities and you have unique gifts that others do not. Will you be faithful to what God has given you? Secondly, I think what we can see from here is that there can be a deep and rich and genuine fellowship amongst all Christians. In that culture, there's no way Cordus would have been able to be part of the final greeting of Paul's letter. I mean, number four slave walking by. Hey, can I get my name in there? Get out of here, Cordus. What are you talking about? No, you can't be in this letter. He's number four slave. He's not significant, says the culture. But the unity in Christ and the bond of the gospel is stronger than social cultural norms. 
Do you at times allow the social, cultural norms to put a wedge between you and the body of Christ? We ought to have deep fellowship with one another, deep fellowship with all Christians, a deep koinonia, a deep fellowship, a partnership that says we are all in this together. You feel that you are all in with other believers, even those who are not like you? You feel that you have a deep, rich, genuine fellowship, a partnership with other Christians? You ought to. Because we are bonded through the blood of Christ and we are striving towards the same thing, the same goal. And so number three, to sum that up, the body of Christ is a means of grace to you. That all of these people were a means of grace to Paul and the rest of the body of Christ in their own unique way. Let the body of Christ be a means of grace to you. And you, if you are in Christ, ought to be a means of grace to others as well. God has, has gifted us with one another. Receive the gift and give the gift. Be a means of grace to others. The last thing we see, we have seen that he, he gave a final word of warning, final word of encouragement, and now a final word of praise. Verses 25 through 27. A word of praise. And the first thing we see is that God established us in the gospel. God establishes us in the gospel. Verses 25 and 26. He says... Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. What's he saying here? God, he is the one who is able to strengthen you. The word for strengthen is a word that, that means to make firm, to make stable. And Paul is saying it is God who strengthens. It is God who establishes, who makes us firm, who makes us stable. And in this context, I believe Paul is talking about strengthening us in the gospel, establishing us in the truth of his word. You understand, God is sufficient to establish you. He is sufficient to strengthen you in what you need to establish you in the gospel, which is the good news of eternal life. Put it this way. You don't need 12 steps of how to be a Christian. You don't need an X amount of hours in the church to become established in salvation. You don't need a, a track record of, quote, good living to strengthen and establish you in the love of God. You don't need, nor could you even succeed in establishing and strengthening and making firm for yourself eternal life. You need God. You need him to strengthen you. You need him to establish you. He is the one who does the establishing. He is the one who establishes the truth of the gospel to our hearts and to our minds. He is the one who establishes our faith in Jesus Christ. He grants us faith to believe. He opens our eyes to see. He gives us understanding of his mysterious truths. Are you here tonight maybe wrestling with being established and strengthened in the good news of the gospel? Know that you cannot be established on your own. 
But come to the Lord and ask that he would give you understanding, that he would give you faith, that he would establish you in his truths. And Paul says, God strengthens us according to my gospel. And when Paul says my gospel, he's not talking about a gospel which he made up or particular to just him, his own origins. And when he's saying my gospel, it's in comparison to the false gospels that the others were preaching, what he was just warning them about. His gospel is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the other false gospels that were in contradiction to the one true gospel. The gospel is not man-made. The gospel, the good news, is a message and truth directly from God himself. It has no human origin. It has no human power. But it is from God. And it's from his power that the gospel is proclaimed. And it's from his power that the gospel is effective. And it is his gospel that we must preach. It's his gospel that we must accept and that we must live by. Have you accepted this one true gospel? Has this one true gospel made an impact on your life? The one and true gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the heart and the soul and the center of the gospel. And it's to that end that Paul says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ we must preach and that we must proclaim. Without Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. Without Jesus Christ, there is no good news. And so Jesus must be at the center of what we proclaim. Jesus must be at the center of what we believe. Now, Paul says it's according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. What is he talking about? What mystery is he talking about? Well, first, we need to understand that when the Bible talks about a mystery, it's not this, this Sherlock Holmes need to figure it out kind of mystery. The way in which the Bible uses mystery, it's, it's something that was hidden for a particular time that has now been revealed. And I believe what Paul's talking about here is the mystery that the gospel extends, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Paul has used mystery in this way before. In Colossians 1, you remember he referred to it earlier in this letter in chapter 11. And I think it fits the context here in verse 26 because he says, been made known to all nations. That now it has been revealed, as has always been the plan, that salvation is not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile as well. What he's saying is it's not about being born into a specific family or specific heritage. Salvation is about faith in Jesus Christ. He's giving a full picture of the gospel here. That the gospel is for all. For all who have who have are found in Jesus Christ. For all who believe in him and have repented of their sins. So what is this gospel in which is established by God, in which is centered around Jesus Christ, in which is preached to all peoples, what does this bring about? What does this produce? He says in verse 26, brings about obedience of faith. It brings about obedience of faith. That there is an effect that the gospel has on the true Christian. Being established in the gospel is not just being established in future salvation and having eternal life with him. That certainly is part of it, and it's a big part of it. But being established in God is being established now, today, that you may be strong, unshakable, unwavering in your faith in Jesus Christ and your obedience to him. Faith without works is dead, says James chapter 2. You cannot say you have faith in Jesus Christ, and yet there is no change in your life. 
The only thing that does is prove that your faith is dead. That it's not genuine. True faith results in true transformation. The gospel has dramatic implications for your life today, right now. Not just eternally, but today. It produces the obedience of faith. Has the gospel brought about obedience in your life? Think about that as the gospel. Not have your parents, not have the fear of discipline, not have your traditions of how you've been brought up, brought about obedience. That's not what I'm talking about. Has the gospel and your faith in Jesus Christ produced obedience to him? There's a difference. And what does the gospel obedience produce? Lastly, the glory of God. And so he ends in verse 27, to God be the glory. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. To God be the glory. In the gospel, we see so much of the character and the work of God that it must bring us to the praise and the glory of God. We see that God is, as he says here, the only God, that there is no other God beside him, that he is the one and only God. And there are many false gods, but there is no other God than the one true God. There is none in contention. God is God alone. He is the only God worthy of our praise. There is none other who is worthy of our praise, who is worthy of our dedication, who is worthy of our lives. Only God, for he is the only God. So let us glorify God alone. We see that God is a wise God. We see God's wisdom in the gospel. Think about it. Who could have come up with such a plan to save the world that God himself would join the creation by adding humanity to himself, that he would live amongst us, that he would die in our place, that he would raise again in victory, that he would save us purely and fully by his grace, that it's not about our works at all, but it is only by his grace. And that he would come again one day and bring all of his people home. Who would come up with such a plan? Only God in his infinite wisdom would have such a unique and perfect plan of salvation. We see that God is to be glorified forever. We never stop glorifying God. Because he never stops being worthy of glory. For all of eternity, for millions and millions of years in eternity, we will not ever outpraise the worthiness of God. He is to be glorified forevermore. Lastly, we see that we can glorify God through Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth. For if it were not for the finished work of Jesus Christ, we could not approach God. We could not please God. We could not genuinely worship God. But because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we can live a life that is glorifying to him. Christian, you are now free through Christ to glorify God with your life. Are you exercising that freedom? Are you living your life every day for the glory of God? That ought to be our aim. That ought to be our goal. That ought to be our desire to live for his glory and his glory alone. As we finish our study through this book of Romans, I want us to end by contemplating the very last word in this book. What does he say? Amen. Amen. Josiah was joking with me. 
pastors like to take one word and just do a whole sermon on it. I'm just going to close this out with one word, not a whole sermon, okay? Amen. Most of you know, maybe not, that the word amen, it's not just a tagline at the end of our prayers so everyone knows you can open your eyes, you can lift your heads, and now we're going on to the next thing. That's what amen's for. No, it's more than that. Amen is a beautiful, it's a rich, it's a powerful word. When we say amen, we are saying we agree with this declaration. When we say amen to the word of God, we are saying we agree with this declaration of God. You see, it really has a lot of weight behind it. To say amen to his word is saying you believe it. You commit to it. You will be faithful to it. You will abide by it. You trust it. Can you say amen to his word? Do you mean it? Can you with Paul say amen to the words that were breathed out by God in this book of Romans? He says amen. Can you say amen to this whole book? When his word says that there is none righteous, not even one, chapter 3, verse 10. Can you say amen? That you agree that you fall under that, that you are not righteous. When his word says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 3.23. Can you say amen? That you agree that you personally have sinned against God. When his word says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, 6.23. Can you say amen? That you agree you deserve death and you agree God has given us the gift of salvation through his son Jesus Christ and him alone. When his word says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 8-1. Can you say amen? That you agree that we all deserve condemnation, but in Jesus Christ, we no longer receive the condemnation that we are due. When his word says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 838 and 39. Can you say amen? That you agree that if you are in Christ, you are forever secured in him and nothing will separate you from his love. When his word says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, 12, 1 and 2. Can you say amen, that you agree that as a result of this incredible gospel, your only response is to give your life in worship as a sacrifice to him. When his word says that the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, 1627. Can you say amen? That you agree God alone deserves all the glory from now and through all of eternity. Can you say amen? Can you say that you believe it? That you commit to it? That you will be faithful to it? That you will abide by it? That you trust it? Or do you simply just say, I agree. But you walk away unchanged. This is the word of God. May his spirit use it to penetrate our hearts. May he give us faith to believe. May he give us humility to submit to it. May he give us the grace to live by it. And may God be glorified through all we say and do now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you.
for your word. And Lord, may we submit to it. May we live by it. God, may we worship you. May you receive all the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would love you and worship you and give you all praise that you are due. Lord, help us even in this time as we discuss that you would be glorified through it. In Christ's name, amen.